0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Ian Doss Dosser is an experienced, decorated investigator with 33 years under his belt at Victoria Police. The former detective chief inspector initially worked at the usual suburban CIBs, including the Heidelberg crime cars. Doss was in the major crime squad and the homicide squad. He managed the armed robbery, arson, Asian, stolen motor vehicle and racing livestock squads. DOS also worked in Internal Affairs, the Police Association, and with the Royal PNG Constabulary. Hi Doss and a very big welcome to the Crime Couch.
1: Thank you Rochelle, lovely to meet you.
0: When you joined, tell me what motivated you? Why did you become a police officer?
1: Okay, I can generally uh, start the ball by, I was a country boy, lived in Banella. Uh, was educated. and My family come from Banella, and I probably wasn't an angel uh, as a young teenager, but I certainly didn't get into any criminal activity. But quite often, I remember uh, getting a kick up the bum or a smack behind the ears, or brought home by the local uh, policeman. And they, for those reasons, I respected the police for that, uh, and I thought mm, I could do this job. So, at the age of sixteen, I finished school. Uh, and I applied to join the police cadets, went through the, the usual recruiting process and started in cadets in the 1st of February 1966. I can say that uh, my first paycheck was in pounds, shillings and pence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good on you. Now, when you joined DOS, you lived in the old Russell Street barracks in 1967-68. Cast your mind back. What was life like for you then?
1: Well, I was a country boy uh, and having moved to the big city, albeit at cadets, I did some temporary work at Dandenong, Oakley, Springvale and, and the uh, other areas that cadets do with their education. But uh, And again, being a cadet, uh, you had the advantage of joining the job at 18 years and one month, whereas a normal person couldn't enlist or join until they eighteen and 18 and a half. So I graduated in October 67, and I can remember as they did then, after graduation, the squad formed up in the drill section at the end of Swanson Street and Latrobe Street, and we formally marched to the Russell Street barracks. I lived in barracks probably for about six months, uh, shared a room with another fine young fella, and we had some good times at Russell Street. We did all the the mundane tasks of Parliament House, manning the switchboard at the old forensic science laboratory, and sometimes we did duty at the City Watch House, but mostly our work was on a night, night shift, it was foot patrol, and I can recall in those days you had a, if you were rostered for foot patrol of Bourke Street, you had to be, for argument's sake, at Parliament House on the hour. And then the beat only went to Elizabeth Street because after that it became the old Burke Street West uh, police area. So you had half an hour to walk that street and you were required to check all doors to see that they were closed. You'd be walking down lanes to see uh, if there was any activities or anything suspicious in there. And then it gave the supervisor the opportunity to say, well, he's supposed to be at Parliament House on the hour. If he's not there, then we can backtrack and find out where he is. A lot of the other duties, as a parliament house, walking around the uh, parliament house for eight hours, it was utterly boring. There used to be a a room there, I think they called it the fireman's room, because I think there was a fireman also on duty at the same time. Quite often, once you had the visit by the duty officer, you would sneak back to that room and punch out some (laughs) Zeds. But actually living in, in barracks was very good because uh, in those days the Police Association Club was downstairs and that was a place that was frequented uh, by a lot of policemen after work and many a good time was spent there. So that, I enjoyed my time at Russell Street, albeit I was glad to get out of there. Being a country boy, I had no idea of what metropolitan Melbourne was. So when a vacancy come up, uh at heidelberg i thought this will do me i put in for heidelberg got the vacancy and then had to move out of barracks and look for accommodation in heidelberg which i did
0: dos did you always want to be a, a detective was that something that you always thought that you wanted to do
1: the simple answer is yes um as i said from the day I joined at 16, I'd always wanted to be a policeman. And back in, I keep referring as the old days, um, there was probably only three areas that were um, applicable for policemen. You'd become a general duties policeman or you'd join the mobile traffic section, I think it was that's what it was called then, or you would become a detective. Obviously, you can't um, graduate and become a detective in the next a uh, couple of weeks, you have to do your training uh, at various stations, and I did uh, my training at Heidelberg. Oh, I think I was at Heidelberg for uh, just over seven years, and at that stage, I was one of the senior members there, and uh, probably not blowing yarn bags, but probably one of the uh, more experienced members at Heidelberg. And that subsequently, um, the move to become a detective generally is to go from uniform into the crime car squad, do your time there uh, and the crime cars are plainclothes duty and you're basically a a young detective. I did detective training school from the Heidelberg crime car squads and it was always in the back of my mind that uh, I didn't want to be a mobile traffic section man or any other area, I wanted to be a detective. So I pursued that path.
0: Doss, when you're in the crime cars in the late 1960s, early 1970s, what crimes did you investigate then as a as a junior D? At the crime car
1: squad, you were basically well, I won't say a glorified divan, but you, you got all the jobs that uh, the uniform blokes got. Um, but wanting to become a, an aspiring detective, if you if you got a job at, a, at say a, a housebreaking, you would go to the scene, you would interview the complainants. And then you would do follow-up work. You'd do uh, door-to-door neighbours. You'd make some inquiries around the area, with, with a view of identifying the offender. So that was, it was the crime cars was always a good stepping stone for people to become detectives.
0: How would you describe your time with the Major Crime Squad? And what career crimes at that stage did you sort of wrestle with?
1: I'd already spent quite a few years at. Russell Street CIB, doing various tasks there. i then uh, done duties, I think it was at Moonee Pond CIB, but actually worked at Coburg CIB, and then later went to Waltham. It was only uh, on promotion to a sub-officer, a sergeant, that uh, I wanted to go to the major crime. The major crime squad at that stage, well, I'll say it was an elite squad, and it had a lot of professional detectives in it because you weren't dealing with... Your normal suburban house breakings, car thefts, uh, which in real terms became a bit mundane. At the Major Crime Squad, you were working with a good team of detectives, and the task or the charter for the Major Crime Squad was basically pursuing escapees, doing large scale burglaries, and that, you know, like thefts of semi trailers, of alcohol, and, and, and large burglaries. And stuff that was statewide, which, as a if you were a detective at Heidelberg, and you got a large burglary, and and it looked like there was another burglary yet, warnable. Um, obviously, the local or the the local detectives couldn't handle that, so that was generally handled over to the major crime squad for investigation. The other area of expertise for the major crime, again back in the old days, was um, safe breakings. Safe breakings at that stage, uh, we're talking in the 80s, 84, 86 area, were, were reasonably common, but there was only a select few people that could actually break into safes, and you know you, you look at the likes of Graham Kinneborough, the Munster, now deceased, he was uh, one of the top safe breakers, Vinnie Mendes, there were quite a few, and. When, when you got a job at a safe breaking, it required a lot of intensive investigation into the means. Mostly, you, you know, you could say, oh, this looks like the work of the Munster, and you would concentrate on that. Didn't always happen that way. The other area in the major crimes was escapees, be it from the prison, the watch house, or in one instance, I can remember. Ross Kenneth Franklin cut his way out of the top of, the, of a prison van, which was going from Pentridge to the City Watch House for a court hearing. Escapees were, they weren't your everyday criminal. They were, well, let's call them professional persons, albeit that they were in jail. But they had one desire, and that was to get out of jail and stay out of jail. And when there was an escapee, let's say Franklin, when he escaped from the prison van, It wasn't just your crew that was chasing him. It became a whole office uh, scenario, and many raids uh, were conducted looking for him. And they were good. They were good fun. They were dangerous, but they were good fun. Then you go again. A group of prisoners that escaped. Robert Gibb, that later married the Heather uh, Parker, Parker, escaped from the Remand Centre, and uh, Archie Butterley. All those villains that seemed to have an attraction up to Jamison or around that area there, maybe because they thought it was safe, but they were pursued up there and I think there's some big shootouts in the Jamison area and and they got caught. Again, uh, that was with the use of the Soggies and other detectives in the squad, but it was a rewarding experience when you could catch an escapee.
0: You were seconded into the majors again as part of the bushfire investigation team and you were responsible, DOS, for the compilation of the inquest briefs for Ash Wednesday. What challenges did you face then? Well,
1: Ash Wednesday was obviously on the 16th of February, 1983. The fires were on a Wednesday and we we can probably all remember the seriousness of those fires. On Monday, the 20th of February, a task force was set up uh, consisted of myself and uh, another member from the major crime. We were seconded into the task force. In total, there were eleven, about eleven. Um, we had a senior, we had two senior sergeants that had had uh, homicide experience. We had the, uh, myself and Tiny Baker. We were from the major crime, and the other crew members were just seconded from the local CIB. Uh, that was the actual Ash Wednesday bushfires. You may recall that they were, for investigation purposes, they were divided into two sort of sets of fires. One set of fires was uh, the Dandenong, Mount Dandenong, all up around there, Nariwaran, that area. One crew investigated that fire. The crew that I was on was responsible for the investigation into the bushfires at, initially at Mount Macedon. There was a bushfire at... Well, I think they call on the Aries Inlet, Law, and Anglesey fires, which uh, started at um, a mill in Dean's Marsh, and it only affected the Anglesey Law area because of a uh, severe wind change on that diet. The other fires were at Warnable and the surrounds up there, and they were uh, what the cause of those fires was. I believe was arcing of uh, electrical wires getting into the pine trees there and. That was a, uh, a devastating fire. Well, they all were devastating um, until the Black Saturday fires in '09. The Ash Wednesday uh, bushfires were deemed as, well, had the most deaths. And in, if you count the Ash Wednesday bushfires in South Australia and uh, Victoria, there were a total of 74 people deceased. My area in that was, I think there was eight deceased at Warrnambool and I think there were seven at um, Aries Inlet and Lawn area. In the bushfire investigation, you're actually working on behalf of the coroner because he has the power to investigate all bushfires. We worked full time on those jobs and, and that was, it was a very rewarding job. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about uh, bushfires and fires because we had the many resources to give us information. But having the fires in Warnable, I mean it meant that we were in Warnable Monday to Friday, probably for three, four, five weeks conducting the investigation. We conducted the investigation and were responsible for the submission of the uh, inquest briefs and then we had to attend the hearings again in Warnable and uh, the inquest wasn't an inquest that went for one day, it went for weeks and that required uh, attendance of at least some of the members at the inquest. It was rewarding, but until you actually see the devastation that's caused by bushfires, um, I think people don't realise the significance of them. With the Black Saturday fires, I understand that a lot was learnt from the previous Ash Wednesday bushfires and they were able to put a lot of, well, let's say, proactive roles into investigating those fires but it it was certainly was a rewarding experience. I think it lasted for over nine months
0: uh, the investigation. So Going back, Dos to the majors, let's talk a little bit about them. W- why do you think they had such an infamous reputation and was it deserved? It's
1: a situation if something drastic happened within uh, Victoria and command crime command decided that, you know this is this is a, a serious job and we need instant action and we don't need and I'm not certainly not putting local detectives down but they need someone that would be more robust in the investigation uh, and and the majors and this goes as well as the armed robbery squad the men in there the majority of them were all dedicated hard working men that weren't prepared to well put it bluntly they took no shit so you know, if you, again, if you're looking for an escapee, you don't knock on the door and say, Billy, will you come outside? You know, it was a situation where it was rip shit and bust. You'd go in through the door with a nine pound key and loaded firearms, and, and the purpose of that was obviously to catch the crook at inopportune moment in bed. And it was, uh, I think. I was probably in the Majors for four years, and as I said, there were some great detectives there, but um, I'm, I'm sort of tending now to believe that uh, towards, well, I'm not just saying because I left, but later on, they tended to get a little bit too big for their boots.
0: Is that why they were disbanded?
1: I don't know the official reason, but I, I would suggest, yes, they were. Uh, And it's a situation, you know, when you're dealing with professional criminals and the same with members of the drug squad, if there's large sums of money involved and uh, it always is a temptation or the corruption, the potential for corruption for members, and that was quite evident. You know, there's quite a few members now that have been charged with dishonesty and corruptions as a result of their time at the major crime and or the drug squad. But if you were an honest, hard-working copper which, as I said, the majority were. You had no fear, you just done the job and it gave you, again, a great satisfaction when you locked up a crook, an escapee, you locked up a crook for a large burglary. It was good. I enjoyed it.
0: Doss, you were in the Homicide Squad in the late 1980s. What cases have stuck with you and why? Yes,
1: uh... I was in the Homicide Squad, and I had a good crew. I'd
0: re- actually That's important, isn't it? Because it's your crew can make you or break you. Is that right?
1: You're certainly right there. You know, Put the scenario, if, if you're... At, I was a senior sergeant at the Homicide Squad, and if you gazetted there and you, you're told, oh, your crew is Rochelle Jackson and Mary Smith and Billy Bloggs, who you don't know or you've never worked with, A, you don't understand their, what they or how they operate... Uh, can you trust them? There, there are a lot of things you've got to take in. But I know when I was in the homicide squad, um, I'd actually recruited two of my crew members. They were both constables with me at Collingwood. They were uh, excellent investigators. They were mature persons, and I could trust them with my life. So yeah, I, I had a good crew. The situation in the homicide squad back in those days was—I I think off memory—I think there, there were. 63, say, to 80 homicides a year. How many of you or your crew actually got depended on how, how if the offence happened when you were on call or working? And the on-call situation was on-call started at 3 o'clock that evening and went through till 3 o'clock the following day. So you if you got a job, it was yours. And in those days, it was your job until you slammed the door shut on the villain. It's it's a known fact that the the first seventy two hours in a homicide investigation uh, are vital to identify and if possible locate the offender within that time frame. Anything that goes o- over that seventy two hours is is makes your job harder and harder. But being dedicated and uh, good detectives, there were many jobs that we worked on for months before we got to identify the the villain and.
0: Any in particular that sort of have stayed with you, Doss, and and maybe there's a good reason why?
1: Well, I can't give you the exact number of jobs that my crew did, but uh, we were certainly hard working in that time. Ones that always sort of jump out or remind me, and it's, uh, I refer to it as the body in the barrel case. Now, I understand that from Since then, there's been quite a few body in the barrels and and you're looking at Snowtown and a few others. But this was a situation where uh, we received information through an informant or an informer, sorry, that there was a body in a barrel in the Yarra River. So with the informer, he took us to a place in um, just off Studley Park Road in Kew and indicated that's where the barrel went in so that we then obtained the services of the search and rescue they did a dive and they found a barrel probably about 15 feet from the bank uh, retrieved the barrel took it to the coroner's court and i remember uh, the forensic person there i can't think what his name was but cut the top off the barrel and the smell that emanated from that barrel were nearly major vomit but the bottom line was there was a person in there and the, the offenders had uh, cut his legs off, cut his arms off, put him in the barrel, and then uh, put lime in, in the barrel. But the problem was, I believe they put too much lime and it didn't didn't work. So we were able to identify, get the body out, what was all the pieces of him, put him together, and we were able to identify him because when they put him in the barrel, his arm was, Tied on his chest and we lifted it up and there was a tattoo and we're able to identify him as uh, Anton Kenny who was a notorious bikey and uh, a little bit of work into that and we found out that uh, he was killed at uh, one of the houses in Stevenson Street Richmond which was owned by Dennis Allen and Dennis Allen was actually responsible cutting off his legs and arms at that address before they put him in the barrel. And the thing that really sort of sticks in my mind a bit is with, when Alan was talking as a, talking to us about the incident, he was saying I was cutting him, cutting his legs off and there was bone and blood and that hitting on the roof and all over the house. So Alan was eventually charged with that murder, but I think for some reason, it slipped me at the moment, but uh, he was acquitted. That, that was... One incident, another one that sticks in my mind is it was in April 86, uh, we were the on-call crew and we got a call to a, a car fire at a Rundle Road bridge in Keela and the suspicion was that there, there was a body in that car. So we went there, um, like attended the scene and do the usual uh, business that you do there and it was ascertained that the deceased was a young girl who worked at Safeway in Gladstone Park. She'd been stabbed seven times and then incinerated in the car. As part of the investigation, we went to Safeway at Gladstone Park and interviewed all the staff. We interviewed one of the suspects who was the assistant manager. I think I can say his name is Stephen James Hunter. I was going to say when we were interviewing him, he was as toey as a Roman sandal. He was sweating and carrying on and... Eventually, we took him into custody and interviewed him. And the short version is that, uh, yes, they were working, uh, well, I call it the night shift, the late shift. He was an assistant manager and the girl was a cash register operator. And somehow the offer became that he would drive her home. And it's alleged, or we allege, that during that trip home, he put the hard word on her for sex and she uh, refused. Uh, He spat the dummy and lost it and stabbed her. And always remember, it wasn't, uh, you think, what did he stab her with? You think as a packer, you may recall, they have like a little Stanley knife that they use to open the cardboard cartons. He stabbed her seven times in the throat and the neck with that, then uh, decided that he uh, better get rid of the evidence. So he uh, set the car on fire and incinerated the girl why i remember him was that he he got convicted i think he'd done 12 years for that crime upon his release he was then charged with another murder and i don't have an intimate knowledge of that murder but it was again uh, a murder in keeler and i think the deceased name was kafiki or something like that so he was charged with her murder and convicted of that and uh, he's still in doing time for that so I mean... He got his fair whack. He did get his fair whack. And, you know, you you say recidivism for murderers is is not that popular, but uh, he he sort of proved that theory. So it was good to see Stephen James Hunter get his just (laughs) deserves.
0: Joss, you were a detective inspector and you were in charge of a number of the squads, like the Asian squad, arson squad, armed robbery, stolen motor vehicles, racing livestock squads. And the thing that I found interesting, I mean, did you find that you, just summing up, did you have to change your approach with any of the squads? Or did you just sort of like continue being in command I mean, they're very specialist squads. Did you feel that you had to change as a manager and an officer in charge with each different squad? I think,
1: if my memory serves me correct, I came from IID on promotion to an inspector into the Crime Command. I was in Crime Command for a short time and then got placed in charge of the armed robbery squad. And obviously, coming from ESD or IID as it was then, you were treated with a little bit of suspicion
0: they would have hated you did
1: they put it bluntly they probably did initially but it's uh, it's a person's management skills and the way that you deal with uh, persons uh, you've got to gain their respect i certainly wasn't there to pinprick or look at any things they done wrong per se but you had to have firm leadership and control As you've said, I was in charge of that area, but I had two senior sergeants, Ray Watson and Neil Edwards, and they run a very tight ship. They were very good. The detectives, on the whole, again, and I think you know quite a few of them that were there, again, were excellent workers. Kenny Ashworth, the Gull, Squirty Kent, you know, that they were all good operators, and when they got a job, it was go 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 get them. So, my leadership style, I believe, was be fair be open and transparent, and that gains the respect of the crews. And I, I, I left the robbers uh, to go on to comment to New Guinea, uh, which is another story. But again, the arson squad uh, and the stolen car squad, albeit that I was the inspector, uh, Alan Pleitner, who was the chief inspector, he sort of adopted the car squad because he got a trip to the UK on a study tour. <laughs> uh, but I, I had the arson squad and the... Uh, well, I'll deal with them. Uh, again, the arson squad had two excellent leaders, uh, Bruce Watt and Colin Cordes, and everyone thinks of the arson squad at the bloody, you know, you're only looking at fires. Well, true, you're only looking at fires, but if you go to a, uh, and they had a criteria, they didn't obviously didn't go to every fire. They went to all fatal house fires. Uh, they went to bombing incidents and large fires. You know, I think the, the benchmark was over a million dollars uh, damage they had some great investigators there and, and you go to a crime a, a crime scene at a fire and all you've got is a bloody ginormous factory that's just covered in ashes and melted tin and timber and you've got to determine the cause of the fire. And the detectives there were very keen, they were educated and with the assistance of the forensic chemists they were able to determine the cause of the fire and then that would determine the way the investigation went. So I didn't have too much, well, I didn't have to have much input into the control of them because they, were, uh, they weren't they were out every morning doing early morning raids, you know, with uh, heavy offenders. They were looking for criminals. And one of the jobs that jumps to mind in the arson squad was we had a series of hedge fires. And you may think, oh, shit, a hedge fire, you know, what's the significance of that? But it was a situation where the, the hedges were all around the leafy suburbs of Turak, Camberwell, Baldwin, anywhere around there, and the hedges were 100-year-old. They were, they were the pride and joy of the owners of the property. It got to a stage where I think every Friday or Saturday night there was a potential for a hedge fire. And I know, um, well, put a bluntly, word came down from command that if we don't find out who's lighting these fires, you'll be warming the seat somewhere else. So we initiated, I won't say a task force, investigation. We utilised the local CIBs, you know, Paran, Campbellwell and all around there because the arson squad couldn't provide the, the numbers. I didn't have an active part in the investigation, but obviously as the OC you have an overall responsibility for the conduct of that job. And I had detectives sitting in bloody hedges waiting for them to be lit. lit. Uh, and I had quite a few other detectives in the observation points as, as well as mobile and static patrols around those leafy suburbs it came to a fruition through a member of the public let's just say i understand that her parents had a house that had a a well-established big hedge and she she knew who was lighting the fires and she basically said mm, i'd be devastated if my parents hedge got burnt down so she nominated the the offender for it and turned out it was a, a 20 year old uni student who at that stage was basically and there were a few others involved but uh, he was the predominant offender he was uh, uh, charged and convicted and I, I got a feeling he even did time and i've now been told that uh, since his release he's now been charged with more serious offenses of lighting fires so he was a pyromaniac so he'd be a good case for someone to study
0: and Doss, those arsonists often commence exactly in that same way, don't they?
1: They, they do. It's, they're all painted with the same brush, for want of a better description. But yeah, look, that was rewarding. And
0: yeah. you managed to keep your seat. Yeah, keep my seat warm without a fire. <laughs> well, Doss, it's been an absolute delight. We're going to continue your story in the next interview. Thanks very much for sitting with me today on the Chrome Couch.
1: Thank you, Rochelle. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Catch.